Tonight, on this recorded edition of Extension 720, our guest is one of the following, either Dan Rather, Bush 1 or Bush 2, or Harry Shearer. Uh, why don't you identify yourself, sir? Well, sir, be make me happier than um, a prairie dog in a coon patch to identify myself. It's been a long time, Milt. Done a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of hay's gone on to the feeder, so to speak. But uh, glad to be back. Spurs still on and jingling. <laughs> but you did bring along your friend Harry Shearer. Yes, yes, he did. And here he is. I gotta is. admit it. Yeah. And Harry Shearer. I, I was actually sorry. I was. I was. You know that gets to be so so habit forming. I, yeah, I, I love I, it. <laughs> I, I, I was this close to doing the whole interview as him because it's just. Well, we we, we let, let's bring him back in a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, we should make clear to all the world that you have just committed a novel. Yeah. It's your first one. My first novel, yeah. It's rather surprising you didn't do it 25 or 30 years ago. Well, you know, I... I Since I, you are so fecund, as they say. Ooh. Uh, I, I toyed with the thought back then, uh, and then I th said, thought to myself, well, you don't know anything, and you haven't lived. So I, And this, of course, was in the old days before people wrote novels in their 20s, still, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they don't know anything and haven't, haven't lived. So I was just born at the wrong time. But... Um, a good idea came along, and it uh, captured me. Well, it's a good idea, but uh, it's a little surprising that you've chosen to do a satirical novel, the satire is surprising, on a, a pseudo-Indian gambling casino mm. as a way of saving uh, a rundown town in New York State. That's a great idea, but I would have thought that you would turn your satirical uh, razor-like perception, if you turned it into a literary production, upon showbiz. Oh, God. Where uh... you've lived all your life yeah well two things one um other people have have and are still uh doing such a good job of that i happen to be an actor in a in a movie that sort of takes a, a comedic aim at, at a, a part of showbiz right now so there's no shortage of people lining up to do that and secondly uh i i feel that uh when i write my my uh, probably it'll be in the form of my memoirs as opposed to a satirical Piece. But anyway, when I really unload on show business, there'll be no turning back, and I won't be working anymore. Well, that won't be a satire. That'll be a now I can tell it all. That's right. Now I can tell it all because I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> what would you tell? Oh my God. Uh, well, I would tell, for example, this this the sort of detail about what it's like backstage at Saturday Night Live that neither of the two television series about that subject this season have managed to touch upon in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and you know, basically just. The fascinating to me uh, idea that, uh, although it's certainly not news to the more thoughtful, that uh, almost every person that the public knows in show business is is a, a very different person uh, in private, and uh, some details about how startling those differences might be. Well, the, the Harry Sharer that we know uh, on the program that you do as yourself, mm -hmm. Le Show, yeah. which I've always loved as a program. For Thank a while you. it was carried on this station, but too many... Football preemptions got in the way. That's correct. It was my honor to be here for a while. Um, it w and it was my honor that you came and subbed for me on this very program yeah. as the host at least once during that period. It was an honor for me to do that, too. I, I, have, I hold this station in, in uh, a certain awe. So do I, in fact. But I hold you in awe as well. But I was about to say, with regard to uh, the awe that I hold you in, that um, one might have thought uh, that... Uh, the one of your many venues in which you are allowed to be yourself mm -hmm. is that very radio program. Yeah. When you're an actor, you're doing usually a satirical acting job on something else. Uh, 
Is that you that we hear on the show? Is that I.E. the real Harry Shearer? It's uh, it's me with sort of a, a couple of transformations uh, for entertainment purposes, uh, so that um, uh, you know one of the real bases of satire is anger, and uh, one hopes to transform that into something more uh, appealing to a listener. Well, the audience. style you take when you do your political commentary is not so much anger as amused contempt. There you go. See, so that's the transformation. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, I guess, I, I guess, and I, I guess I, I uh, that's the main transformation I try to achieve. I just think uh, somebody who co comes on stage uh, or on, into your living room or your car and is just palpably angry is not nearly as entertaining as, I think, amused contempt is more entertaining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is very amusing Thank contempt you. very <laughs> often. Um, let us, if only briefly, review your career in showbiz and in related pursuits. It begins when you as a child are somehow associated with Jack Benny. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. I started uh, working for Mr. Benny when I was seven years old. Doing what? I was an actor, on a child actor. I, I uh, through a fluke of my piano teacher had become uh -huh. a children's agent, and she had volunteered to get try to get me some work, and it was a, f a source of family amusement. And then the first audition she called with was for the Jack Benny program, and I went in, and I was a good reader. So I did a good cold reading, and I got the job. Going back to the classical Benny program, what's a famous skit in which you had a role? Ooh, well, um, probably uh, the best answer to that would be I was a member of this group called the Beverly Hills Beavers, which, mm -hmm. don't be shocked, was his like little Cub Scout troop. And we did our version of the Jack Benny show. And I played, uh, I played Sheldon Leonard, the uh -huh. guy who used to say, uh, hey, bud, bud, come over, come here a minute. And I also played uh, Frank Nelson, who was famous for, ooh, do I? Two people who tormented Benny. Um, and Frank Nelson usually as uh, the floor walker at a department that's store. That's correct. That was, a, that was the classic Frank Nelson. Right. The floor walker at the <laughs> Wait a minute. Do you enjoy driving me crazy? Ooh, do I? <laughs> he was uh, later president of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, uh -huh. Sorry, of the uh, uh, Television and Radio Actors. So I guess he enjoyed <laughs> tormenting employers uh. at that point. But uh, I worked for him for eight years. What a thrill that was. Yeah. By the, so you were a, an adolescent by the time you left. Yes. And did you go on into other things in showbiz immediately? Well, I did was it, movies. Was it onward and upward? I, no, it was an interrupted course. I did movies and TV. I was in The Robe and Emmett and Costello go to Mars. And I worked for a lot of other people in the business. It wasn't just Jack Benny. But at 15, I thought, thank you. I've had a lovely time. This was cute. Uh -huh. Now I'm going to be a serious grown-up. Went to college and uh, aimed for maybe journalism or, or politics or, or government and dabbled, it's journalism, politics, or teaching, sorry. And uh, I dabbled in all those and then uh, ran, <laughs> ran scrambling back into show business as fast as my little what was the What was the re-entry point in show business? It was a, a series, a radio series that was on in Los Angeles called The Credibility Gap, mm -hmm. um, where we did uh, what started out every uh, three hours as... Uh, regular newscasts, and then at some point, in a, when a story had piqued our interest, uh, suddenly it went from that the news story telling you what had happened into a comedy sketch based on that story, uh, or a song. And we were on the air three times a day for ten minutes, uh, a wonderful schedule to just make you write and write and write and write and write and perform and develop characters. And then we did it for another. We did that for two years, and then we did it on another radio station in L.A. for another year, just one 15-minute show a day, but a grand opus that could.
sprawl as long as 22 minutes when we had something good or shrink to eight minutes when we just mm-hmm. went, hey, light day, goodbye. So it was a perfect situation. Uh, and this was before satellite syndication, so we never really got that show heard outside Los Angeles, but it was a, a great training ground for me. When do you wind up uh, on Saturday Night Live? Uh, in 1979, the fifth year of the original setup, mm-hmm. uh, I'd been offered a job two years earlier, uh, but it was a writing job. And I said pretty much these words, I can write television in Los Angeles. Why would I uproot, my, uproot myself and come Had here? you been doing stand-up comedy? No. Uh, I'd been in doing, and out? I'd no. been working on Fernwood Tonight, the uh, Martin Mull, Fred Wood. Writing that. Series. Writing that. That was a great comic series. It was. I remember it. And yeah. sometimes coming out and performing on it. And uh, doing some acting, but basically, um, I said, you know, I'll come back. I'll come to Saturday Night Live as a writer performer, not as a writer. The acting that you did in those days was it straight stage and film acting, or was I was it never straight as an actor. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, it's always been uh, comedic. Uh, uh, it, it's sometimes been comedic in in straight shows. I yeah. haven't always been in comedy shows, but I've tried always to do something a little. Uh, twisted and the show gets started after you leave saturday night live I no suppose. actually it started just before i went back the second time uh-huh because i went back for one season left came back five years later having just done this is spinal tap and having started the show about eight months earlier and took a leave of absence from the show to go to saturday night live and then hurried back yeah. as soon as i could to resume the radio show surely you've done uh, uh two texans talking to each other uh, on the show one of them being the aforementioned uh former CBS broadcaster, and the other being the current president. Never never had the opportunity to do uh, Diane interviewing uh, the president, just uh, I think because his father still has a grudge against me. Um, I try not to keep a grudge, Milk. You know, life is, uh, life is too short for grudges and too long for taxes. Well, here's the former president. Why don't you say hello to him? Uh, Dan, uh, don't hold a grudge. That was a, a time in the campaign long past. Uh, things have changed. Obviously, uh, you're you're not uh, in a job where you can make anybody feel uncomfortable anymore. Well, sir, I hope to make the afflicted comfortable and comfort the afflicted uh, on uh, HDTV. If, if anybody ever figures out what that is, please call me. <laughs> I have, uh, I must confess, an absolute love for good mimicry, and I, I can't do it at all, but I, it absolutely send me. <laughs> uh, there were three guys... It used to come in here regularly. Two of them died young, um, but they were all voiceover actor types mm. in town, mm. but who were great mimics. One uh, was um, blind as well, uh, which uh, and he was one of the greatest mimics I've ever known. Um, Wayne Julin, Don Vogel, uh, and Don Kennedy mm. were the three, and uh, I just eat that stuff up all eat that stuff up all the time. I would find a reason to decide we must do another mimics program about once a month mm. while the three of them were still around. Oh man. Now if it's if it's good it's real it's real It isn't fun. of course just doing voices. It's getting a, a comic sense of the oddity of the person of the, of the character as as yeah. Tom Brokaw I put it. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a certain a, 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 a you have to be familiar with the characters life, his lifestyle, what it is he likes to do, what it is he doesn't like to do, in a way. You know, for me, the the idea that I can write another book about the greatest generation. I have the greatest generation cookbook coming out, the 100 greatest recipes of the greatest generation, and, and after that, of course, the greatest generation diet. 
<laughs> uh, but I'm not doing my duty. We, <laughs> we should get to not enough Indians. Oh, yeah. The story involves, well, as when we meet these people, they're in a floundering, bankrupt town someplace in New York State. Upstate New York, yeah. It's a, it's a town where the, the manufacturing facilities, you know, first they moved south and then they moved to Malaysia. So it's... It's twice removed from any 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 source of income for this town, and um, through a, a fluke and a series of flukes, they figure out that the only way really to save the place is uh, for them to get declared an Indian tribe so they can open a casino. That's and, a dodge, or that's a gimmick that's actually been used in real life by various uh, hemi demi semi quaver pseudo Indians. Yeah, well, I, you know, I sort of was inspired. I was, we were talking about this off the air uh, by the story of the Mashantucket Pequots. Uh, exactly, up there in Connecticut. Yeah, and w I read the story in the in the New York Times that said that at the time that they opened Foxwoods, the number of full-blooded tribe members living on tribe land was one. Mm -hmm. And so I just subtracted one from that total, and that's where the story started. Uh, what happens to these folks? Well, they... They go to Washington, or, or you know, it's it's a it's the the first bunch of characters involve the sort of the leaders of the town. Uh, among them, the head of the school board. Pretty sorry lot. Basically. A pretty sorry lot, but I they're all drawn from real life. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, and and through a guy who is sort of an itinerant uh, salesman whose job is to uh, get exclusive vending machine deals for uh, soft drink companies in schools, uh, they get connected to um, a Vegas. Uh, mogul, who is the, the avatar of class in Vegas, such as it is, and uh, then they also get connected to, uh, through him, to a staff member of the Indian Affairs Committee, who sort of walks them through the process of how you get recognized as an Indian tribe. How does this really work in real life? What advantages do people who can claim some Indian descent have in uh, declaring themselves or getting themselves set up as if they were independent nations so that the laws of the United States, including the anti-gambling regulations, don't apply. Well, that is really the, the advantage is you get so this big award called sovereignty. Yeah. And then you can sell cigarettes on tribal land uh, for much less than you can sell them in the adjacent territory. You can run a gambling casino. You can do all sorts of things that uh, business people uh, obeying other laws in other parts of the same state don't have to obey. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I, I, gambling was the door that opened it. Uh, you know, cigarettes followed, and I'm sure other things will follow that. Uh, bootleg, how, pi bootleg DVDs, probably. How Indian do you have to be, or how do you prove that uh, you somehow have a claim to these tribal rights? Well, Indian Affairs has a, a tribal recognition bureau. I, I sort of track the reality of the process yeah. to a certain extent in the book. And they have, uh, you know, a, a, a crew of anthropologists and so forth who dig through the evidence of you know do you have do you have arrowheads in your background so to speak and uh, I think 132nd is about what what the minimum is in terms of blood line what do you call a 132nd anything I don't know I know that the the old uh, one fourth was a quadroon, quadroon and, and comes an octoroon, octoroon and so on but, and, but I don't know where it goes after that yeah. Some and sort of, some, some sort, sort of, of rune, rune though, yeah. And and those words do not have a distinguished lineage, so. You uh, know. Well, they have a great uh, old adventure. Uh, yes, they do. But things come apart, of course. Well, things have to come apart. It's a comic novel, yeah. uh, and one of the things that happens is there's a, a, a another Indian casino, very successful, just down the road, that doesn't cotton to this idea of competition, uh, and there's also uh, a character who's a sort of a self-described gadfly. Um, 
who makes things difficult for them. And, and there's also a, uh, it's it's a, it's full of characters. Uh, the the Vegas mogul has a wife who's a former showgirl. Mm -hmm. um, the um, it's great fun. Thank I've you. read it with great pleasure. Thank you. Um, and a number of other people have enjoyed it as well. Uh, for praise for Not Enough Indians comes from various sources. Carl Hyacin, who's one of the great comic writers yeah. of our time, says, Harry Shearer has one of America's great satirical minds, and he's in beautifully wicked form with Not Enough Indians. And then a woman whom I've always ogled from afar uh -oh. uh, in the movies, yes. and her father was on this program perhaps 10 years ago, wow. and we just recently uh, pulled, I found in my favorite Biggie closet, a tape of that old program, and we just put it up on our pod a little ah. while ago. Ah. Her father is, of course, Tony Curtis. Yeah. And she is Jamie Lee Curtis, who says, Harry Shearer's Not Enough Indians is a comic travelogue through the dog-eat-dog, mob-eat-mob, quid-pro-quo world of contemporary corporate commerce and corruption. There's a lot of alliteration in there. Yes, it is. Uh, sad, funny, prescient, and pathetic. It will leave you shaking your head in wonder and worry. <laughs> See, now I, you do I, well with Jamie Lee, don't you? Uh, yeah, well, we're, uh, I'm a fan of hers, um, and I was thrilled that, you know, she, she's a, now a, a very successful children's book author. No, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, she's written, I think, four or five really quite wonderful children's books. So she comes, comes to the back uh, cover of a book uh, totally legitimately. I've enjoyed her in many films, and I dare I confess this on family radio. I've always particularly enjoyed her décolletage. Mm, I think she's, she'd be pleased to note that. Do tell her. Yeah. As we pause for a quick round of commercials, when we come back, I want to get to some serious stuff. You've okay. been writing seriously yeah. about a town which is now your hometown, mm -hmm. at least half time. Yeah. That town is New Orleans. Yes. And let's talk about what you've been observing down there lately. We do return to Harry Shearer right after this. And we return to Harry Shearer. The excuse for his being in this studio is the publication just recently of his fine satirical novel, Not Enough Indians. Who's that published by? Justin Charles and Company in uh, Boston. It's a, uh, I'm pleased to say I, I'm with an independent publishing company uh -huh. that isn't owned by something that owns movie studios and record companies and Lubrax as well. That is pleasing, indeed. Yeah. You know, it suddenly occurs to me, I'm going to give you a little a bit of a challenge. What is the link between the cover of your novel and indeed the design of the place where the casino opened up there. Uh, um, in, in Gamage, New York? In Gamage, New York. Now the home of the Philoquinsets. What's the link between that and the nomination of Abraham Lincoln for the presidency of the United States? Ah! Here in Chicago. Interesting. Now, see, I just came off of Celebrity Jeopardy, so I should be uh, yeah. well... Yeah, that's right. You do that as well. Well you? prepared. Well, I've done it for the first time... Uh, well prepared for that, and I, uh, I'm going to pass. If you don't know it, you couldn't possibly make it up. But back then in 1860, uh, the newly formed Republican Party held its first convention, at which they had to nominate a presidential candidate, in a building specially constructed for the purpose on the banks of the Chicago River, just a, a, a skip away from where we're sitting at the moment. Right. And the place was called because it looked like a wigwam. Oh it my was God. the wigwam. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was a great big conical construction. Good Lord. Just like the one we see on the oh cover my God. of your book. I'm very proud of that, by the way. That's the great Bruce McCall, who's uh, uh, an artist and writer at The New Yorker, who I uh, 
I, I, I convinced to do that cover. That's great. It's uh, a great cover. Yeah, he's got a wonderful book that's now a collector's item and, and it's mm-hmm. lavishing, is, is languishing in undeserved obscurity called Zany Afternoons, which is a, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a wonderful no, book of illustrations of imagined cars and buildings of the future oh, that really? never came to be. It's Sounds just great. delightful. Now then, now for the serious thing. Yeah. We go down the Mississippi uh, to New Orleans. Way down yonder in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You've been living there for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. How come? Because I fell in love with the city. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're down in New Orleans, you run into so many people who say, you know, I came here for a weekend and I never left. Really? And mm-hmm. it's basically that kind of love affair. If you... I, I have to say that in, in a sense, it became the antidote to my, my hometown of birth, Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is a wonderful place and I I still live there but uh, because it's had so many people who came with the expressed desire of not setting down roots and then they turn around and say you know the problem with this place is there's no sense of community and yes we do know and thank you New Orleans is not like that at all New Orleans if you come there you come to be absorbed by that community and to be a part of a very tight tapestry of a community it's the among other unknown or, or unusual facts about the city. It's the city, the American city with the largest native-born population still resident in it. Uh, you're always running into people who, you know, live three blocks from where their mama lived when they grew up and, you know, four blocks in the other direction from cousins. And and it's one reason why the disaster last year was so uniquely devastating to that city because that very tight tapestry has been ripped apart and you have people living without that uh, that support system that they, they took for grant, granted as a part of the privilege of living in New Orleans. Um, the music is fabulous. The food is, is unparalleled. As a food town, you'd have to go to some place in, in Umbria or mm-hmm. other parts of Italy to find its equal. My favorite down there, I've been to it a number of times, was, what is it called, the Commander's, Commander's Palace. Commander's just reopened. Palace. Just reopened. Has it reopened? Yeah. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Have they um, maintained or restored the, uh, the quality? Uh, I haven't been back since they reopened, so I'll have to call you with that information. But uh, and there was a great dining room at the Punchard Train Hotel. Mm. Well, I can say all the restaurants that I go to uh, are cooking at least as well, and in a uh. couple cases better than they were before the disaster. Uh, I think the restaurant business felt that they were leading sure. the recovery. Well, you were there before the disaster, but yeah. then you you weren't there at the moment of the disaster. No, right? I was not. I was busy working on this movie that's just coming out next. Yeah. So I. I skedaddled back down the day that we finished shooting. Uh, I skipped the rap party. Then there could be no more sincere <laughs> form of concern mm-hmm. than to skip the rap party. I went down there, and I've been basically down there at least once a month, uh, twice a month ever since. And if I may use the word uh, directly, you've been raging about what's happened, or about how it happened and what has not been happening there yeah. ever since. Yeah. You've got a blog that you do regularly on this Huffington location. Yeah. And a, uh, half of all of your particular blogs are about New Orleans. Yeah, well, it's true. Um, I started there, I started there uh, mini or, uh, or sub-blog uh, specifically to critique the press, the media, and make fun of the media, and basically to get away from this, they're biased for the right and they're biased for the left, and it's a very tiresome debate, uh, and try to talk about why stories do or don't get covered by the media with the knowledge of somebody who actually worked at Newsweek and some other media outlets, and, and I kind of have 
flatter myself that I have a little more insight into you know story story selection mm. and how editors think. And even so, I've been appalled by what the national media have done with the New Orleans story. Um, it seems to be too complicated for them, uh, at least in two different ways. Mississippi Gulf Coast, and to a certain minor extent, Alabama, got hit by a hurricane. New Orleans got flooded by catastrophic breaches of federally constructed levees. The hurricane, as it hit New Orleans, was a, not a Category 5 or even a Category 4. It was, at most, a strong Category 1 or a weak Category 2. The news, the national news never caught up with the Hurricane Center's uh, final evaluation of the strength of Katrina. Uh, but it's to the naked eye, you can see the difference between hurricane damage and flood damage. Hurricane damage, everything's horizontal. It blew buildings down. Flood damage, the buildings are standing, but are rotten. Mm-hmm. Flood water stood in them for six weeks, rotting, corroding, molding, destroying them. But it's a totally different look, and, and, and you know, one half-hour drive will show you the difference. Now, wait a minute. So New Orleans has been through that degree of hurricane assault in the past. Mm-hmm. Why did, what went so wrong this time? If it was only a one or possibly a two. Yeah, well, you know, most hurricanes that have, have targeted or been... Uh, predicted to target New Orleans always veer right and go through Mississippi. Uh-huh. So, um, what happened this time was that uh, 40 years of, of Army Corps of Engineering work on building a flood protection system, uh, which was only finished in the late 90s, uh, was faulty to an extreme. They are the villains of most of the pieces that you've written on this, which I've read. Yeah. That is the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Uh, Sheer incompetence or lack of proper funding or what? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a comedian. I, I look to the people who, uh, at, about starting about a year ago, three independent teams of forensic engineers came down to start looking through the, mm-hmm. the, the debris before uh, it got carted away, before the evidence was removed. They all came to similar conclusions, um, that the core, first of all, in the design stage uh, has a factor of safety, which is an engineering term for how much how much you over-engineer a project, much lower for levees than for dams. That's a little shocking. Uh, then you have the core as they devise their cost-benefit ratios, which they have to concoct for every project, uh, are not allowed to include as a benefit the saving of human lives. So purely economic benefits you know, which in many cases in their estimates are conjured up. They were told, for example, not to build the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, which is a, a direct line from the Gulf of Mexico to the heart of New Orleans. They were told for years it's going to be a funnel for any storm surge. It's going to amplify the surge, and you are going to kill New Orleans with this. But their their cost-benefit ratios imagined a, a, a degree of barge traffic that never eventuated, there was going to be this huge economic benefit to barge owners, I guess. Then there were specific engineering uh, problems that were found. Uh, soil that was used in the building of the flood walls that was way too porous and, and swampy to hold the structure. They didn't go and get clay from somewhere else. Uh, supporting structures that were not drilled deep enough, even though they were told by their contractors, this isn't going to hold. So they're they're very shocking, dire kinds of mistakes that you can't really believe that the gold standard, supposedly, of American engineering commits. Once every 20 radio programs that I do, uh, my second favorite quotation comes inevitably to mind. 
because it has almost universal applicability, and it applies right now. It's that uh, the scene is, um, is uh, New York, the, uh, the Mets are playing, and Stengel is the manager, and they lose yet another game. They botch it in every way, and Stengel is heard going back, going uh, out of the dugout, going back to the locker room, mumbling, don't nobody here know how to play this game? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that applies. It's just about everything. Yeah. Uh, and apparently the Army engineers didn't know how to play that. Well, I guess. Uh, here's the thing. Here's, here's the delicious and tragic historical irony. In 1953, when the Netherlands had a, a devastating flood, mm-hmm. where, where was the first place they went to seek ideas on what to do in the future? New Orleans, Louisiana, where the pumps, the, we have the largest mm-hmm. pumps ever made by man to pump out the, the bowl that the city sits in in case of rain or flood. And they took that and went back to the Netherlands. And whereas the Army Corps struggles to create a system that is designed to prevent the once-in-a-hundred-year disaster, the Dutch have designed a system to prevent or to protect against the one-in-every-10,000-year disaster. So they take their engineering a little more seriously. I've said... Uh, they have to. Their whole country is. Well, yeah. They're but that's below sea level. That's the point. And when you hear Americans say, well, what, do you, what business do you guys have living below sea level? Yeah. Uh, one asks, you know, well, ask the Dutch, please, you know. But I must say, uh, I was talking about the, the, the dichotomies that exist all through this story and why it's been huff, tough for the media to cover. So in the one and the same time, we feel... Uh, we've been abandoned. We, we we were destroyed by the federal government. This was the Army Corps of Engineers. Your tax dollars at work. Then the federal government compounds the disaster by its the, shall we say, its tepid response, in the wake of the disaster, and then you have Americans saying, well, why should you guys rebuild? Uh, why should we help you rebuild? Uh, so there are causes for New Orleanians to feel as though we've been written out of the Union, and yet, at the same time, marvelous volunteer response which continues to this day. So it's, it's a little, it's cognitive dissonance. Are we in, are we mm-hmm. out of this country? You know, are we part of the union, are we not? Well, what does it hang on from here, from here forward? Uh, it hangs on funding for the restoration of the wetlands. Uh, the, the New Orleans, I mean, sorry, the, the Louisiana coast has uh, degraded by the size of Rhode Island over the last 30 years partly due to the oil companies coming in and building canals, crisscrossing the marshes without any view to the environmental uh, consequences, partly due to the Army Corps levying up the Mississippi and so preventing the river from depositing its sediment, which renews the wetlands, instead dumping it out in the Gulf. Uh, And the purpose of the wetlands, aside from being the home of our fisheries and, and a great ecological boon, is that for every mile of wetlands, uh, you you have a, a hurricane buffer mm-hmm. that reduces the strength of hurricanes that come that come ashore. Mm-hmm. We've lost that. Uh, in the short term, what New Orleans needs uh, is we've we've just started to get money after a, more than a year to help homeowners repair their homes, but there's been no funding for landlords and for renters. So the people who have not been able to come back home are the people who weren't, you know didn't have the resources to own property in the first place. As I understand place. it, the population is down to about one-third of what it was. It's up to half now. Up to half. Just about half. Yeah. Just about half. You said that in your youth you, for a while, considered a career in politics. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should reconsider it. Maybe you're the proper successor to Ray Nagin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. The name Ray Nagin makes me laugh. Um, 
and the the thought of going into politics makes me laugh as well. No, I'm uh, I'm content with my uh, my bushel full of occupations. Uh, I'll leave that to somebody else. We haven't talked about your switching from the utterly serious and somber to the playful, or the artistic. We haven't talked about. Uh, your film work, of mm -hmm. which there has been a great deal in recent yeah, years. Yeah. Uh, you've got a new one just about to appear? Yes, I think it's opening November 17th. It's called For Your Consideration. Uh, Christopher Guest, who's an old friend and a wonderful uh, collaborator and a, and a brilliant writer and director, uh, has been doing this series of films that are basically improvised. He and his colleague Eugene Levy write a story, a scenario, and mm -hmm. then he puts together the, this cast that's a, a fairly regular repertory company by now. Who's in it? Uh, Kat, the spectacular Catherine O'Hara. She is wonderful. Yeah. She, I'm just in awe of her. Both she and Levy are from the Second City Toronto group, yes. aren't they? Yes. Gene yeah. uh, is in in these pictures. Michael McKean, whom I've worked with for years in The Credibility Gap and in Spinal Tap. Um, Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Jane Lynch, Fred Willard, John Michael Higgins. Uh, it's the most brilliant improvisers, I think, on the planet. And uh, so it's a huge treat to, to work with them every time. Did they also do that film? I can't remember its name, but it's a comic treatment of um, some Broadway character comes in to help people in a small town. Yes, put that on was the, the show. first one of the series. What's Wait, the name? Waiting for Guffman. Waiting for Guffman. For Guffman. Yes. Wonderfully done. But you're not in that, are I'm you? I'm not in that. Uh, I was. I had a scheduling conflict, so I wasn't in that uh -huh. one. And then the second one was called Best in Show about dog shows, and I wasn't in that because I was off directing a movie of my own. So the first one I did in this series was uh, the last one, which was called A Mighty Wind, about folk, yeah. folk uh, singers reunited. Spinal Tap was not part of their... No, that was uh, Rob Reiner directed that. Uh, yeah. But it was the time... Classic, was, great film. Thank course. you. And, and it was the first time that I think improvisational comedy had been done in a movie uh -huh. like that. It's been a pleasure seeing you. Thank you. Always a can, pleasure. Can you take us out on... Uh, with yet another public personality who may have something to say? You know, Milt... It's been great listening to your show. It's great to hear good people working hard. It's hard work doing this show. I know it's hard work. A lot of people don't appreciate the hard work you do every day, but it's hard. Good people back there, good people up here. It's hard work. It is, sir, but you made you made it easy. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Laura says hi. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, and she's working hard, too. A hi back to Laura, of course. And um, we close with a reminder that the fine and very... Uh, very simply funny new novel, though bitterly funny, <laughs> by Harry Shearer, is titled Not Enough Indians. Thank you, sir. Thank you.